Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 368. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I have a very interesting conversation with a guest who specializes in an extremely important topic, which is suicidality. My guest today is Stacy Friedenthal, PhD, LCSW, who is recognized for her expertise in helping people who have suicidal thoughts. She authored the books, Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals, and the new book, Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What Family, Friends, and Partners Can Say and Do. Dr. Friedenthal created and maintains the website Speaking of Suicide, which has had more than 6 million views in 10 years. She has authored or co-authored two dozen peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, about suicidal intent, suicidality, and other topics related to suicide. Dr. Friedenthal is an associate professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, where she has taught classes on suicide assessment and intervention, clinical social work practice and theory, and mental health assessment, diagnosis, and treatments. She's also a psychotherapist and consultant. Her private practice focuses on helping people who have experienced suicidal thoughts, attempted suicide, or lost someone they loved to suicide. Very important work. Dr. Friedenthal has provided training and consultations to audiences throughout the U.S. and in Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and U.S. naval bases in Japan and Guam. She is painfully aware of suicide's effects. Dr. Friedenthal herself first experienced suicidal thoughts in seventh grade. In high school, a friend died by suicide just a couple hours after after the two had hugged goodbye at a party. In her 20s, Dr. Friedenthal attempted suicide twice. She recounts one of these attempts in a piece she wrote for the New York Times, A Suicide Therapist's Secret Past, and in another piece for Psychotherapy Networker, When Therapists Struggle with Suicidality. I will link to both of those in the show notes. And the piece in Psychotherapy Networker is how I learned about her work. Almost 30 years ago, Dr. Friedenthal first volunteered as a suicide hotline counselor in Dallas, Texas. After earning a master's degree in social work, she worked in crisis settings in Austin, including a psychiatric emergency service, a rape crisis center, and a hospital emergency room. She earned her PhD in social work at Washington University in St. Louis and subsequently joined the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work faculty in 2005. She lives in Englewood, Colorado with her husband, Pete, and they have an adult son in his 20s and many cats. 
And cats will be a big part of our conversation because there was a lot of cat action happening between my cat and her cats while we were recording. I don't think you're going to hear much from the cats, but you're definitely going to hear us talking about them. So I was very honored that Stacy agreed to come be my guest on Therapy Chat and talk with us about her new book. You know, we all are familiar with the prevalence of suicide and suicidal thoughts in the mental health world. And I'm sure most people know someone who's died by suicide. I certainly do. But yet it's something that we don't talk about enough. Everyone is kind of afraid of talking about it, it seems. And so I think her book is very needed. People need to know how to how to respond when someone tells them that they're thinking about suicide. So I'm very grateful for her work and that she agreed to be my guest when we had a really nice conversation about a very sensitive and painful topic. So I hope you will find this interesting. Let's get right into it. This week's episode is sponsored by Kelly Miranda of Zinimi. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very pleased and honored to be speaking with Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. Stacy, thank you for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. I'm excited because I've known about your work for a little while. I've heard about your blog speaking or your website speaking of suicide. And when I heard that you had a new book out, I wanted to talk with you, not even realizing that you had another book, but your newest book is called Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What Family, Friends and Partners Can Say and Do. And that's an amazing title. So like clear. And if somebody's concerned about someone they care about having suicidal thoughts, it's like, oh, get this. So I'm excited to talk to you about helping people with this really scary problem. You know, when people express having suicidal thoughts, we can get so scared. But before we get into it, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am, as you said, an author and I have the website Speaking of Suicide. I'm also a psychotherapist. I have an LCSW in Colorado and have a small practice specializing mainly in helping people who have suicidal thoughts or who are loved ones of people who have suicidal thoughts, including, and I mean, this is, this is the sad part, including people who have lost somebody to suicide. And did I mention that I'm a, an associate professor of social work at the University of Denver? No. Okay. You know, your memory is bad when you can't remember what you've said in the last like 40 seconds. So I am at the social work school at University of Denver. And then I think the last thing I would say about myself is that I'm a cat lady. I love it. So since you said you're a cat lady, can you tell us a little bit about your cats? Well, I'm not allowed to say how many I have because it may or may not be above the legal limit where I live. <laughs> but we do have multiple cats. And one of my favorite memes, I don't know if you've ever seen this, is it, it's somebody emptying a bottle and it says the, the most powerful antidepressant. And it's all these cats coming out of this pill bottle. I love that. If you remind me, I can I can send it to you. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to do that. I feel like that's apt. The most powerful antidepressant, cats. And, and we're talking about such a serious topic and you know, like I said, a scary topic and sad, as you mentioned, when we lose anyone to suicide. Let's talk about how you got into this field. Sure, sure. And can I just backtrack just a, a, yeah. a tiny bit to what you were saying? And that's that cats might sound unrelated to what I do, but actually I accidentally became trauma-informed in my teaching without realizing I was using the principles of trauma-informed teaching. Because my students were getting really upset about the course materials intensity. And, and at first I thought, well, this is good practice for when they're with a client, but my classes are three hours long and client sessions aren't three hours long. Yeah. So I started putting in pictures of cats and dogs in the PowerPoint presentations. And it's become this whole thing. Students call them brain breaks and they send me their pictures and it just has changed the 
the learning environment so much that I, I feel sort of now like my love of cats is very related to the work I do in, in suicide prevention. Like it enables it. Yes, yes. It's like it sustains it. It's it's my self-care. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that as my cat joins our, our call. That timing is amazing. And I love it, Scott. It's behind right in your face. <laughs> Yep. He's like, look at this. Mm-hmm. Did I hear cat? <laughs> he says, I'm showing Stacy my best side. You get to see the other part. But no, I think it's now he's showing you his best side. But no, I think that's actually stay with us, listeners. I think that's actually a real good point about almost like about life that with trauma, particularly we have negativity bias and trauma, you know, makes us notice everything that's wrong, all the signs of danger or threat. And one of the ways that we heal is to also notice signs of safety, signs of soothing things and comforts and love and connection. And so, yeah, I mean, your intuitive understanding that putting in those pictures would be comforting or offset the sadness or the trauma reaction that people might have been having to hearing such heavy, you know, clinical information that made them think about things that upset them. It's really been astounding because every quarter in my course evaluations, multiple people say how much they loved the pet photos. And also I do it now in presentations too, you know, not just in my classes and people just love it. And I think it's, you know, in terms of being trauma informed, there's there's a danger of trying to distract too much yeah. from the painful aspect of the topic. And so I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat things and, you know, be overly protective of students and professionals getting upset because clients don't give trigger warnings and nor should they, you know, so... Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, tiptoe around the topic, but I do also want to honor that it it is a topic with a lot of gravity to it. And to be talking about it intensively, to be talking about suicide or suicide prevention intensively, that it is nice to break that up a little. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably necessary for your health and well-being too, you know, and as a trauma therapist who does a lot of speaking and I'm so familiar with talking about trauma. I talk about trauma on therapy chat all the time. I don't give trigger warnings or content warnings unless there's something graphic that's going to be shared, but otherwise, but it's a heavy topic and it doesn't land as heavily for me all the time because I'm so used to talking about it. So I think that that's a good reminder as a a prevention educator and clinician that the topic is intense, even though for you, it's talking about it is more familiar. Absolutely. Like I, I, and it sounds like you in a way have become, and I don't mean this in the bad sense of the word, but desensitized a little. It's not as charged to address a topic that's taboo to many other people. Yeah. And, and it is, and that's the thing. When someone starts talking about suicide, people have these knee-jerk reactions of fear. And that's why it seems like your book can be so helpful because we can't think and problem solve when we're in our fear reaction. That's exactly what I talk about. Is and in fact, who read the book in advance, they called me and they said, I wish my mother had had this book when I was suicidal. She said, this book is really about helping the reader to manage their emotions so they can be present with the person who has suicidal thoughts. And I felt so happy that she said that because that's that's music to my ears. You know, that's what yes. I want is for people to be able to listen to. In fact, there's a chapter called Brave Listening. I want people to be able to listen, even though they are scared and to not panic or overreact or or center themselves You know, somebody says they're having suicidal thoughts and the person they say it to says, how could you do that to me? You know, how could you think of hurting me like that? And, you know, they they are speaking from their heart and they may have good intentions, but it also probably is not a helpful thing to say. Yeah. For most most people, I'm I'm couching it and saying probably and for most people, because there's always going to be one person who says, well, what stopped me? Uh My mother said, or my partner said, how could you do that to me? So I don't want to just universally say it never works, but I think 
you know, the message I try to get across in my book is that we need to listen and, and hear the person's story without putting our emotions first. Right. Helping someone who's expressing suicidal thoughts is about helping that person either get help or feel better in the moment, not about helping you feel better. The person that they're telling, they're telling right. you because they need some help. Exactly. And if if the listener, whether this is a therapist or a family member or a friend, if the listener is totally preoccupied with their own needs, then the person with suicidal thoughts can then be in a role of reassuring. Like, don't worry, don't worry, I won't do anything. You know, you don't have to worry, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, the roles have become reversed that now the person who has suicidal thoughts is taking care of the person who ideally would be helping them. And I say therapists too, because there, there are a lot of therapists. I mean, I encounter them with, with incredible frequency who are scared of the topic of suicide, who want their clients to promise not to act on suicidal thoughts, who do welfare checks by the police when, when it's to allay their anxiety, not because there really is a grave danger to the client. And those, those things, they, they hurt my heart though. Yes. Oh, I want to talk about all of that much more. I'm not going to say anything else. Let me just ask you before we get into it all, will you talk a little bit more about how you started focusing on helping people who are suicidal? Sure. I will talk more about it. I haven't talked at all because I <laughs> I got into talking about cats. So... Thanks, Samson. <laughs> <laughs> so... I was a newspaper reporter in my previous life, and and that was not a good match for both physical and emotional reasons. Physical because I got carpal tunnel syndrome, but emotional because I, I would go to scenes where horrific traumas had happened to people, and I'm interviewing them immediately after somebody they love has been shot or held hostage or run over, you know, whatever the case is. And I'm interviewing them to get a quote for a newspaper article. And that just, and I have nothing against journalists. I don't mean to denigrate what they do. It's just that I, I'm one of those people where they say, don't be so sensitive, you know? So I wanted to be able to know how to help somebody in that situation. So I started volunteering at a suicide hotline and then I went and got my MSW so that I could work in the field of, I wasn't quite sure what my role would be. I wanted there to be the possibility of being a therapist, but I also wanted to have more options than that, which is why I went into social work instead of like getting an LPC or you know, becoming a psychologist or something like that. And so after my MSW, most of my clinical work was in a setting that involved crisis intervention or suicide assessment in some way. I worked in a hospital emergency room. I worked at a psychiatric emergency service at the rape crisis center things like that. And then I missed the writing aspect of the work I had been doing. And I decided to get a PhD as a way to kind of meld the clinical with the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, scholarly, you know? Yeah. And, and so I got a PhD in social work and concentrated all my research, some aspect of suicide. My dissertation was adolescents who had suicidal thoughts and whether or not they got help around that time. And the big finding from that was, and it's not terribly surprising, but it's, it is terribly disappointing that Black and Latinx kids are less likely to get help than white kids, even when their problems are just as severe. So even when they really need help, they're less likely. And, and the reason I say that's disappointing is because I, I think there are not good reasons for that disparity, you know, having uh -huh. to do with racism and access to care and, uh -huh. representation in the mental health field and the mental health profession. So that's the professional route. So then somehow, you know, no one bestows this title on you. Somehow, somewhere along the way, I, I became a suicidologist. It's not a I thought it was a title that you get. <laughs> well, anyone can, can give it to themselves. Okay. But it is, you know, it is how I identify myself in terms of a clinical suicidologist since I also do clinical work. And, and that's been my professional path. Yeah. Like me specializing in trauma, I'm sure you get a lot of people saying, oh, that's very hard work. How do you do it? And 
you know, because all the time. Yeah. You're really you're really allowing yourself to witness people in such extreme moments. You're allowing yourself to be with people's very extreme feelings that generally in our culture, in Western culture, we tend to shy away from deep, intense emotions or any emotions. Absolutely. Or if we don't shy away from them, we try to talk people out of them. Yeah. Or punish. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That too. What, what you were saying made me think of years ago when I was in my doctoral program. I was involved in a research study where I interviewed Vietnam veterans who had been suicidal when they came back from the Vietnam War. And now the research team was following up with them to see how they'd been doing in the last, you know, 30 years. And, and these were incredibly long qualitative interviews. And I was talking with this one veteran in his kitchen for like six hours, all about suicide, you know, asking him when, you know, about all the different times he'd attempted suicide and seriously considered suicide. And he says to me, how do you tip this? How do you talk with people about this? He says, I'm exhausted just for the day and, and you're going to be doing it more. And, and I said, so then, you know, he said again, how do you do it? And I said, I don't know, but I think I have the same question about proctologists. Proctologists. Yeah. That's the word. Proctologists. <laughs> and I don't mean to compare the work I do with, with, you know, the physical work of a proctologist, but I do think there's a parallel in that it's work that you're seeing something that is usually kept hidden and usually is private and usually is shied away from. And, and you're kind of immersing yourself in this topic. Or not you, me in this analogy. So Yeah. And it's needed, but a lot of people don't want to do it. Right. That was exactly what I said is it makes me think of now I'm wondering, is it proctologists or proctologists? I don't know. But in any case, it what I said was, and I'm grateful they'll do it. You know, like yeah. I don't know what how or why they do what they do, but I'm grateful that they do because obviously there's a need. Yes. Yeah. We have this part of our bodies that may need help sometime. If only we had a culture where you didn't have to feel ashamed about anything that's just a normal part of being human, right? Whether it's your body or how your body works or sex or death or suicide, you know, there's too many taboos. Well, there are. And Laura, I, I feel a little like I'm hiding because you asked me how I got into this work and I told you my professional reasons, but I also have personal reasons. And and I am open about the fact that I myself have been suicidal and I have attempted suicide. And so, and I've also lost people to suicide and I've had family members who were suicidal, you know, so there's a whole personal side too that, that I don't want to, I mean, like it didn't come up when you asked the question, because I was sort of thinking about the professional path, but there is also a personal path that I don't want to hide. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'll also share, I've had suicidal thoughts too that, you know, I've actually realized and I didn't realize this years ago, but like in the past few years, I've realized that when I was a teen, I was suicidal for a long period of time. And in some ways, those thoughts that if it gets really bad, I can die were reassuring. Yes. And thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I'm delighted we can have this conversation so openly. That's something that I talk about a lot. Like I gave a presentation on chronic suicidal thoughts and I talk about how to to most therapists, the objective is to get the person to stop thinking of suicide. Like it's just, you know, not even just to most therapists, like most books and articles presented as success is the person is no longer thinking of suicide. Yeah. But many people, they, they, they get comforted by the knowledge that, that they can escape. There's a quote from a book by Walker Percy called The Movie Goer. And she says something like, and I can send this to you if you want the exact words for your show notes. But she says something like, if I didn't know I could kill myself, or, or no, she says something like, knowing I can kill myself helps me to feel better. If I didn't know that I could kill myself, then I would. You know, like then she yeah. would be. And it's fictional, but I've encountered many people who feel this way. And there's even an article where in the title it calls suicidal ideation, life-sustaining recourse. Because yeah. for some people, it's how they stay alive is knowing that they ultimately do have control and they ultimately can in their life if they want to. And we also see this with assisted suicide, with physician-assisted suicide in, in the case of terminal illness, 
that a lot of people, they get the prescription, they don't fill it or they fill it and they don't use it because just knowing that they've got the pills there in case their pain gets too bad helps them to bear the pain. That makes sense. And by the way, I, I don't mean this to be an advertisement for thinking of suicide. Right. But but people do. We do. It is a human thing. And I think it's a I think of it from a trauma perspective. I think of the suicidal thoughts as kind of reflecting, I can't bear this anymore, won't be able to live with this. And the thoughts give the person like, again, if you're thinking it's really bad, but if it gets bad enough, I'm not I would never want anyone to die by suicide. I'm not saying it's a good idea to die by suicide. I am saying, though, that we don't have to be so afraid of those thoughts if they're helping the person feel less hopelessness. That's exactly right. And that's why I think it's important to ask people what how does it help to think of suicide? You know, how does it help you and how does it hurt you to consider suicide? And and often the way it helps is exactly what you're talking about and the way it hurts often. I mean, obviously, there's the danger to life. That's a given that that is a a potential negative. But what often comes up when I ask people that question is judgment from others or shame because of others' expectations that, you know, we we have this message on society that if you think of suicide, there's something wrong with you when really it's much more common than people probably realize. Yeah. So this book, you told me that this book is really for people who anyone in their life, they don't have to be therapists, is talking about suicide. And how can this book help? Sure. Well, and I do want to tell you, I do have a book for therapists and it's called Helping the Suicidal Person Tips and Techniques for Professionals. And it came out about five years ago. I, I feel really good about like that. There's a book for professionals. Now there's a book for friends and family and other loved ones. I I, mm-hmm. I like the complementarity of that. I hope it helps in multiple ways. I mean, the book starts off talking about the way, well, first it addresses like myths of suicide and suicidality so that people can be operating from a place of accurate information. Like, for example, you know, there's the myth that if you ask somebody about suicidal thoughts, then that will make them suicidal or that will give them the idea. That is still that is still a common belief here in my community where I live. And we have a a large suicide problem here. But but people want it to be hush hush, never talk about it, because then they say others will want to die that way as well. Yeah, I I get it because like I've had professionals with many years of experience say to me after a training, I know with my head that it's not dangerous, but in my gut, I'm still so scared, you know? So, but the idea that people don't already know about suicide or can't come up with the idea on their own is sadly, I mean, I, I don't mean to be this blunt, but it's wishful thinking. Yeah. You know, so if we ask about suicidal thoughts, we're giving voice to what may already be there. And if it's not, I mean, I've never been able to ask somebody, are you thinking of suicide? And then all of a sudden now they are. Not that you would want to, but you can't persuade someone to become suicidal. Right. It's pretty much the opposite of what our nervous system is trying to do. It's trying to stay alive at all times. So, you know, this isn't the, oh, oh, I didn't know I had that option. Right. Oh, I didn't think of that. Well, gosh, now that you gave me the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's research that shows that most First graders already know about suicide. They don't know the word, but they know that people in their own life intentionally. And then by third grade, most children know the word. So we are not introducing a new idea, even with adolescents and young adolescents and older children. We're not introducing the idea. And there's also been research in recent years, especially that there are three and four and five-year-olds who have suicidal thoughts. So again, even if we do broach the topic with somebody very young, which we would want to use the the language that they comprehend. Like, do you ever wish you could go to sleep forever? Or do you ever wish you could not wake up? You know, that kind of language. So, so even with people that young, we're not going to trigger a suicide, so to speak. That's good to know, because I think when people, especially when a young child under 10 says, I want to die, or I'm thinking about, I wish I were dead. Parents and schools get really scared. 
And like, why is this child saying this? You know, they just get so this is like an emergency. And I, I believe it's an emergency to tend to what the child needs, but it may not mean that the parent has to rush to the emergency room right then, especially right. for a three or four year old. Right. And I think that's one of the things you asked, how will my book help? And I started by saying it it starts by addressing myths. But one of the overriding messages of the book to me is that it's not always an emergency, you know, and and even if somebody's not a therapist or not a psychiatrist or not a physician, they're still in a position to help. And they've got a lot of tools at their disposal to help because most people who have suicidal thoughts don't go to a professional. And even a significant proportion of those who go to a professional don't tell their therapist they have suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. And part of that is fear of being hospitalized against Mm -hmm. their will, which is a huge fear and a huge issue. But friends and family and teachers and coworkers and coaches and ministers, you know, the whole gamut of people who aren't mental health professionals, they can help a lot by listening and by offering to help the person get help if they need professional help and being with them and being present with them and, you know, sundry other things enough to fill a book. So that's one key message of the book is that it's not always an emergency. I mean, I say more than once, you don't need to call the police automatically if somebody has suicidal thoughts, because I encounter so much people who think that if someone has suicidal thoughts, they should call 911. It's like, no, somebody has suicidal thoughts, you should talk with them about that. And a lot of professionals, they send the person to an emergency room to get an assessment that they could do, you know, the, the professional assessment. Yeah. I mean, it's part of our job is to do suicide assessment. It's part of all healthcare professionals job to know how to ask those questions. And if we are just sort of like, I don't know. I feel like kicking the person down to someone else to to deal with. First of all, it's not relational, but also it seems like that's just another fear reaction. It is. And I I think a lot of suicide risk assessment for professionals is fear based. You know, it's about asking questions to get answers that can allay the professional's fears or inform whether or not the professional will seek hospitalization, which is needed, you know. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't center the client's needs. You know, I, I, I've, I've said this before, so you may, have, I, I apologize for repetition, but I've never met somebody with suicidal thoughts who says, I think what would help me feel better is if somebody asked me 20 questions about my suicide risk. You know, that's right. not the way it works. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Did you know that 47% of therapists struggling financially in private practice already have a full caseload of clients? It's not enough to simply start a private practice and fill up your caseload. You need to know how to run and sustain a profitable business. And the sooner you find out, the less mistakes you'll make on your journey. During the week of February 6, 2023, Kelly Higdon and Miranda Palmer of ZinniMe are hosting free 90-minute trainings on how to make $10,000 plus more profits per year and work 10 plus hours less per week in private practice separated by stage. And you're invited to join live. The stage specific trainings are focused on the following. 
how creating an ethically sound, informed consent document can lead to over $10,000 more in profit in 2023, how understanding business expenses and taxes could increase your end-of-year profitability by over 30%, how little daily changes in habits and patterns could save you hours a week and reduce your liability. In short, They're going to talk specifics about what to change to work less in practice and make more money while getting better clinical outcomes. You can't beat that. Learn more about the trainings at the link in our show notes for Make More Profits and Work Less in Private Practice from Kelly Miranda of Zinimi. As we're talking, I just picture someone saying, I feel so, I feel like giving up. I feel like there's no hope. I can't bear this anymore. And the other person says, how long have you been feeling this way? Instead of like, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? You know, what's been happening? Are you okay? You know, like anything that just takes concern for the person's feelings instead of your own agenda. And I get it that we don't want, again, we don't want people to die by suicide. And we care about our clients and we worry about liability and We worry that we'll miss something that will cause harm to happen to this person that we would feel so devastated to to do. But isn't there a lot of risk that that lack of relational, you know, response also makes the person feel like for me, I'm just thinking with trauma. You know, we were talking at the beginning where you were saying that centering yourself instead of, you know, the person. For a lot of people, the reason why they feel this way is that their attachment needs weren't met as a child. And so it it's, can reenact that same process of feeling unseen, unheard, ignored, misunderstood, you know, misattuned. It seems like it could make things a lot worse. Absolutely. And I love the example you gave of someone, you know, sharing a very painful feeling and then just being asked a risk assessment question. Because I teach a class on suicide assessment and intervention at my university, and there's a video role play assignment where the students interview each other and then I watch and give feedback. And I've been teaching this class, I think now probably for about eight or nine years and maybe a little less. And what I noticed is in the interviews, this is how it would go that the the person in the role of therapist would say, if they were, if they asked the question, well, they would say, do you have thoughts of suicide or, you know, do you have thoughts of killing yourself or, you know, whatever they would directly ask the question. And the person would say, yes, I feel so bad that I just wish I were dead. And the next response, almost a hundred percent of the time was, do you have a plan? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, doink. it just sounds out of tune. And it hurts to hear because it's like, they just gave you something like a tender piece of themselves and you're you're working off of a checklist. Right. So I made it like this is sort of a soapbox of mine. I have a lot of soapboxes, but one of my soapboxes is that if someone when someone says they have suicidal thoughts, that the very first question shouldn't be do you have a plan, but it should be something that invites them to say what's going on with them. Like it could be, you know, gosh, you must really be hurting or stressed or going through something really bad. If you're having thoughts of suicide, what's going on, you know, or there's actually a whole type of therapy, an intervention called the assisted suicide short intervention program, where they advocate saying, can you tell me the story of how you came to think of suicide? Or can you tell me the story of why you feel this way? And It's been night and day, both in the interviews, in the mock interviews that the students do, and in the reports I get back from them about their practice. Yeah, it's hearing you talking about it like that, I guess, and I'm thinking about my time with clients too, but like, it just makes sense. You're the person's expressing pain and you're meeting them where they are, what we learn in social work. And you're saying, I care about this and I want to know more about it. And that's in contrast to the typical either, you know, the the knee jerk reaction that people have, whether it's a professional or friends of family. Professional might say, start asking these assessment questions. Friends of family might say, oh, you don't you don't really mean that or, oh, it's not that bad or 
oh, don't say that. Or, oh, I just can't take it if I hear you saying that. And all of those things take the focus off of the person. Like you said, it's not centering the person who's expressing the pain they're in. But how helpful it can be for just someone to say, wow, that sounds really hard. You know, I'm so I care about you. I'm so sorry to hear you're going through this. Anything like that or wanting to know more. You know, it's it's the opposite from don't talk about it or giving it like a message from the therapist to the client, like not a safe topic, not a safe topic. You know, with our assessment questions, that's kind of what we do. It's like that's so obvious. But because of the taboo and also I think because we learn as clinicians, we learn to you better ask those questions. If somebody says they're suicidal, you better ask those questions. If you think they're suicidal, you better ask those questions. If you didn't ask those questions, then you miss something and it's your fault if someone dies, which, again, we don't want liability, but we don't want to cause, you know, we're here to help. We don't want to cause someone to feel unsupported or to feel worse. Absolutely. And it's not either or. I mean, I think those questions are still important in the right context. But I think that even for people who use, you know, a very regimented checklist or questionnaire, it doesn't hurt to start it with can you tell me what's going on? You know, can you, what are you going through? You know, something that invites yeah. them to tell their story in their own words rather than just answering yes, no questions. Right. The clinical detachment piece is, can be too much there. And, and it's interesting because with so many other things, now I'm thinking of clinicians because I think in general, in I don't know if it's just Western society or every society, but, you know, in general, there's so much inhibition around talking about painful topics, which is why I was saying, like, it's good that I have brain breaks, but I don't want to have too many brain breaks. Uh-huh. Because I don't want to feed into this inhibition and fear, but it's hard for people to sit with somebody who is saying something sad or painful or frightening. And, and that's just in general, but, but with professionals too, I think that a lot of therapists, they can do that with other topics, but not when it is about suicide. And I think it's because of what you're saying, the sphere of liability, there's almost like a conflict of interest. I need to be client centered. And yet I also need to be thinking of all these questions I have to ask. So I don't get sued kind of mentality. Yeah. I think those personally. I understand the purpose of mandated reporting and those types of, you know, duty to warn and all the protocols that we follow. But I think that they can be they can be done in a way that's very almost robotic and not again, I keep saying relational, but that's like I feel like it makes all the difference to just be like, okay, listen, even if you're saying, okay, I understand you're feeling that way. Sounds like maybe going to the hospital might be a good idea here, you know. Like versus, oh, I'm going to call right now and you're going to the hospital, you know, like involuntarily. Like it's just it is a confusing topic and it's a scary topic, as I've said multiple times. So I know for me, too, as a clinician, I am i don't feel like some of the things, the critiques that I'm giving are about things that, you know, I think about for myself. So but do you think if you have enough time, do you think you could give a few examples of how how people can respond effectively if someone in their life is feeling suicidal and shares that with them? Maybe just as we sort of wrap up for people to take away. Sure. Just really quickly, I just want to be careful to point out that a lot of people think that we are mandated reporters with suicidal ideation, but it's actually very rare that there's mandated reporting in the same sense as like with child abuse. But we do have that duty to protect. Yeah. And I think people kind of equate the two. So I just wanted to put that out there. Do you want to say just a little bit more about it? You don't have to rush through it. Well, I feel kind of pedantic. So it's okay. But, but it's also another one of my soapboxes because I think there is this misunderstanding where People even say to clients, like, well, if you have suicidal thoughts, I have to report you. Right. Well, that's not really a reporting agency. There are some very uncommon exceptions. There's an Indian reservation. I don't remember the specific specific name, but they have mandated reporting that there's in the Department of Health, there's a place that they report suicide attempts and suicidal ideation to. Because this reservation had such a cluster of suicides that they became very proactive. But 
the reality is with mandated reporting, you don't get to exercise any discretion. You know, like if a client tells you that they're abusing a child, you don't get to decide, well, I bet that's not true or, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean that. You know, you have to report it. Yeah. And really, that that's not a good example. I should do it the other way, which is if a client says they're being abused. Yeah. We don't get to say, well, I don't think they're telling the truth, so I'm not going to report it. We just have to report. Whereas duty to protect, we've got discretion about how we proceed. And there's a lot of different options that exist before, quote, quote, reporting, which is calling the police. You know, we can do safety planning. We can increase frequency of sessions or contact even by phone or text. We can talk with family members, you know, there's many different options at our disposal. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Because, yeah, sometimes I was using mandated reporters too broadly there. And and it's it's actually important that you clarified that. I mean, obviously, it's important that you clarified that this is your area of expertise. And it's it's definitely important because for people who are listening, if you're not a clinician, I don't want you thinking that anybody who says I have had suicidal thoughts or I'm having suicidal thoughts will be reported somewhere automatically. That's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. That's a good point that somebody may be listening right now who has suicidal thoughts and is thinking, oh, well, I can't tell my therapist. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients who've said, too, I don't think I should tell you this because I know what you're going to have to do. And I'm like, what would I have to do? And they say, you know, you'd, I'd have to go to the hospital and I'm like, what are you, what is it? You know, like even if it's something like self-harming behavior, sometimes people think that they would have to go to the hospital if they've self-harmed and that's not, you know, it's not the same. Yes. Yes. And there is a stereotype and sadly there, there are some therapists who fulfill it, but most do not. There is a stereotype that if you say you have suicidal thoughts, then you'll be sent to a hospital automatically. And that's something that I try to push against. To answer your question, you said some tips about how to respond. So one thing I would say is, you know, whether it's a clinician or a family member, I think it's important to speak the unspeakable, you know, or to speak what is so often unspeakable and to to ask questions. And there, there are ways we can ask, you know, it's not like, hi, my name is Stacy. Are you suicidal? You know, <laughs> it's Sean Shea and his book, the Practical Art of Suicide Assessment, he talks about ways we can kind of ask about suicidal thoughts while also conveying that we won't be judgy or we won't be, we won't panic or be shocked. And one of those is just to say, and, and I mean, it sounds so simple, but just to say, you know, a lot of people who are going through this kind of situation, you know, like a lot of people, for example, who have been raped and are dealing with PTSD, they have thoughts of suicide. Do you have thoughts of killing yourself? Because now we've conveyed that we've heard it before, that other people feel that way, that it's not totally unusual. And then some people advocate for kind of easing into it and saying, do you ever feel so bad that you wish you weren't alive anymore? Which I gave as an example before for kids, but it can be asked of adults too. And it's really amazing the way people's minds work. Because like I had a client once many years ago who said that they would never, ever think of suicide, ever, which, okay, that's really good to know. And and I said, do you ever, are things ever so bad you wish that you would die without killing yourself? And, and they said, yes. And then they proceeded to tell me this very detailed suicide plan, but it turned out they were religious and it was a sin to think of suicide, but if God orchestrated it, and so what they were saying and what seemed like a suicide plan was more like a fantasy of what could happen and then it wouldn't be the sin of suicide. So the, the mind is clever. Yeah. And that points out that asking that question and having the person say, I would never think of that isn't the end, right? Because, you know, the further discussion that you just described illuminates that they are thinking about it. They just don't want to call it that or they don't want to say it like that because of their religious beliefs. Well, and, and you're you're absolutely right. And this goes back to something you said just a few minutes ago about people having fears of what you'll do. That often when somebody tells me they don't have suicidal thoughts, I ask them, if in the future you did, would you feel comfortable telling me? And they usually say no. And 
now we're able to talk hypothetically if they had suicidal thoughts in the future, they wouldn't tell me because 99 times out of 100, they think I would have them hospitalized. And then I'm able to say I'm very conservative about hospitalization. You know, I, I, I would only recommend a higher level of care if you were in immediate grave danger of acting on suicidal thoughts in the next at most day. But, you know, like if you said, I'm leaving this office and I'm going to kill myself and there's nothing anybody can do, then, yeah, I'm yeah. going to start thinking, okay, what's a safe place for this person? But what they say almost every time, I mean, really, almost every time they say, oh, no, I'm not that bad off. I mean, I'm not thinking of suicide that much. And so they had said they weren't thinking of suicide yeah. at all. <laughs> but then when we were talking about it hypothetically and they realized it was safe, now they're saying, oh, well, I think of suicide, but I'm not going to leave the office and kill myself. No, I just think of it, you know, like at night after I've had some wine and I'm alone and it, it's, you know, late, you know. And so now we're having a conversation we weren't going to have. Yeah, that's good. Because, yeah, the point is to help the person find relief and be able to trust that you are a safe person to share how they really feel with. I, I was at a training in my, I think it was right after my MSW program, I had a training for a psychiatric emergency service. And the speaker said, we talk to people when we buy a car, we get advice. When we need a new dentist, we talk to people and get advice. And yet if somebody wants to end their life, but the system is set up that it's hard for them to get input and talk about it. And that had a big impression on me. You know, that it could be the most important decision of their life. And so they need somebody who can really listen and and, and be there with them while they are going through the, the different thoughts and feelings that they have. Yeah. So you want a picture of a cat now, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's well, it is an overwhelming topic when you think about it from so many different, you know, situations and conversations. But I think it's really important. And I'm guessing maybe this is why your website's called Speaking of Suicide is to speak about it openly and just kind of shatter the stigma around the topic so that people can not be too afraid to be able to ask for help. Absolutely. I mean, thinking about what happened in the beginning of this call, I, I'm going to sound sappy, but it was really beautiful because I said, I don't, I, I don't want to hide that I've had suicidal thoughts. And then you shared that you've had suicidal th yeah. thoughts. And I'm sorry that you experienced, you know, whatever led to that. I don't mean it's great that you had suicidal thoughts, but the fact that you shared it that I think can set off dominoes in ways we'll never know. You yeah. know, because not only did you and I model that we can talk about it, but we also are modeling that people can get through it. Because yeah. if nobody who's been suicidal talks about it, then the only stories people know are the ones with very, very tragic endings. If people are able to say, oh, yeah, I felt that way, you know, and this is what helped me or this is what I think now, you know, then then others who are suffering or thinking of suicide for whatever reasons, they have a, a, a broader picture now. I agree. Yeah, we don't have to pretend as professionals that we aren't human. I don't I actually think it's deeply counterproductive for us to pretend not to have feelings or to be above the issues that we're helping our clients with. I think that's really the, the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then, of course, then there's people who take it too far in the other direction. So that it's always finding that sweet spot. You don't tell your client that when they are mentioning that they're having those thoughts. You don't mention, oh, I've had those thoughts too. That's not exactly. the thing. And sometimes I've had clients ask and sometimes I've answered and sometimes I haven't. Yeah, well, context. right. And and with what you were sharing about the question for a client where have you ever had these thoughts and they say no, that fear of losing control, basically of losing having your power and control taken away by someone else prevents people from opening up, whether in therapy or just with, you know, to share with someone that could help them that they trust. People, in my experience, people with complex trauma, childhood trauma often will tell you that they think about it every day, you know, that there's a moment in every day where they have that thought. And it's almost like the goal of therapy is that they're not having that thought every day anymore. 
you know, but if that's if I have 20 clients on my caseload and they each think every day one time I wish I were dead or I can't live through this or whatever the thought is, then it must be a pretty common reaction to these experiences. Yeah, well, we know. I mean, I'm a geek, so I, I cite research, but there's research that 13 to 14 million people in the United States seriously consider suicide every year. And that includes one out of five high school students. And they're asked, do you seriously consider suicide or have you seriously considered suicide? That doesn't capture the people who might have just thought of it every right. now and then and don't really consider it serious. You know, I think there's this kind of misconception that somebody has to have mental illness to think of suicide, but life is hard and we're programmed to avoid pain. And so if we're hurting because of the various ways that life can be hurtful. It makes sense that the brain is looking for, or the mind is looking for ways to stop pain. I don't, of course, I think there are many other ways we can deal with pain and heal and recover without resorting to suicide. And yet, I think it's also very understandable that the mind goes there. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for you and the work you're doing. And you taking the time to come and speak with me on therapy chat today, because I think, well, for one thing, your work is extremely important and valuable. And it sounds like this book will be a great benefit to so many people. And I'll put the link to your other book, too, which I know clinicians will be saying, oh, I want that one. Because we don't, you know, I think we don't learn enough. Your program has a whole class on suicidology, but I know mine didn't. And I've never met another social worker whose school did either. So this is really important, especially I think I'm going to say this. I don't know what people think, but with the the, the aftermath of the pandemic, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more extreme mental health concerns being common. And so this isn't just like happy times. Now we all dance. It's all over. And, you know, thank goodness this is now we now we feel it. Yeah, I think we're going to, I think the effects are going to have ripples for many years. And I don't mean necessarily in terms of mental health and suicidality, but just there's, you know, things that happen or have happened during the pandemic. So I think it's people debate whether or not it really is over. Right. But, but you know, there are things that have happened that the effects will be felt for years. Yeah. Like kids not being in school for two years or infants not being socialized, you know, with anyone besides their parents, you know, things like one. Yeah. Yeah. So this is important knowledge for all of us. And I think it's good to know, too, for people who are not mental health professionals, that you can make a difference as well. Yes, very much. By asking questions that might be scary to ask and by listening to what might be scary to hear and being with the person, providing emotional support and also logistical support in trying to help them get help or or even other ways too, like helping them in practical ways so that they're not, they don't feel so overwhelmed or giving them rides if they need to get somewhere, you know, things like that, that can seem like small ways to help, but can have a big impact. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Stacy, where can people find all of these things that you're offering your books, your, I think you do trainings. I know you have blog articles. Yeah. Well, I have my website, speakingofsuicide.com. And I also have a site, StacyFreedenthal.com, and that's S-T-A-C-E-Y-F-R-E-E-D-E-N-T-H-A-L. And the Stacy Friedenthal site is in the process of being redesigned because right now it's just for my psychotherapy practice, but it's being redesigned so that it'll cover speaking engagements, books, blog, you know, there's actually even going to be a, a page about cats. As there should. So, and it's going to have pictures of my cat, our cats, and one or two pictures of me with cats. So, so there's a built-in brain, brain break on her side. So once that's redesigned, that will be a place where all the information will be in the central place. Okay. Well, I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. And just thank you. Thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing again your time with us here. Well, thank you. And thank you for a very, very important conversation. 
Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached to see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.